Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Claire Cameron. Claire is the kind of person who has led canoe trips in Algonquin Park and worked as an instructor for Outward Bound. She has taught mountaineering, climbing, and whitewater rafting in Oregon and beyond. But Claire is also the kind of person whose writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, Lenny Letter, Salon, and elsewhere. Claire is the author of three novels, the most recent of which is The Last Neanderthal, which was published in 2017 by Doubleday Canada and went on to be published in a dozen other countries. It was a bestseller in Canada and was a finalist for the 2017 Rogers Writers' Trust Fiction Prize. The Los Angeles Review of Books said about The Last Neanderthal that, quote, Cameron pulls out all the literary stops in giving Neanderthals as much free reign, agency, and authenticity as possible. This could easily be the best book that shakes up the classic Neanderthal tropes in science fiction and fantasy. Claire and I talk about how she does her best writing when she's able to write from the inside out rather than the other way around. How being diagnosed with a form of skin cancer after the publication of The Last Neanderthal changed not only what she wrote about next, but how she engages with the outside world. And about... Well, how the idea of taking a dump in the woods is kind of central to the way her imagination works. We really do talk about that. Claire and I would have spoken for longer, but as you'll hear, her dog finally got impatient. And dogs know best. I came across a quote from you, um, from an interview, which I think is possibly the best quote I have ever, and maybe the wisest quote I have ever come across from a writer to date. Uh, And this is the quote. It's a good sign if you take a robust shit. I didn't say that. You 100% (laughs) said that in an interview. (laughs) It was in the context of talking about you've had lots of experience working outdoors, working in the bush, working kind of out in the wild. And there are certain certain (laughs) lessons that you've learned about our bodies and about also say like the 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 squeamishness about bodily functions goes away. And yeah, it's a good sign if you take a robust shit. I'm into this now. I I get it. (laughs) And I have to like learn that again, even just listening to myself say that, right? Because you yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But that it's true. It is true. (laughs) That would suggest that there are sort of two Claire Camerons. There's the like outdoors in the wild Claire, and then the one that you are in a room in a house in a city, or or do you kind of keep both with you at the same time? No, there's a, when I'm into my work and I'm writing and I'm in, I'm, I'm working, I'm reacting to myself internally. 
And then there's uh, like the Claire who's more conscious of the external world and has much more of a filter. And you just saw me step from one to the other. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, you know, if I get into a conversation or if I get into a piece of writing, um, then I'm, I'm moving from the inside out, you know, and I'm, I'm taking cues from myself and what I've learned. But I think as, I don't know, as a woman, as a writer, as all sorts of things, I, I, also operate the other way where I'm, you know, worried about the gaze on me. And then I tend to censor myself a lot more. But when I, what I found is that when I'm writing and I have the outside looking in, my writing is terrible. And when I'm sitting inside myself and looking out, that's when it's more inspired. That's interesting. Is it a sense of like self-consciousness that you have to work through a sense of like, maybe you're going in with too much literal intention or too much yeah. and, and and you need to kind of get beyond that this is what I want to do and you need to do what you're actually just going to do what you really want to exactly. do exactly yeah 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 so uh I think about like after my first novel came out the line painter which was like 2007 I went um I wrote that not thinking it would be published really I would I was just kind of on my own and wrote it. it came from a very pure place I would say um and then I once it came out I went to a bunch of book clubs so I had that chance of sitting in the a living room with um you know, a bunch of women or people that knew each other fairly well, having very honest conversations about my book, <laughs> uh -huh. which, you know, was sort of a mixed blessing, especially as a new writer. Like br brutally had, honest conversations? Well, just, like... you know, they get into an argument over the main character among friends and they just sort of forgot I was there or whatever else. So I just got, for the first time, I got very like pure feedback in a way mm. that like I'd never done an MFA. I hadn't been in writing courses. Um, and it took me so long to shake that off, um, that sense of sort of being watched while I wrote, I guess. Um, right. You know, and I had, I, it took me a while to get back into it and climb back inside myself. So I think that that was an early example, but, you know, you have different, as I age, there's different ways that can happen. Um, you know, or I, I set out to write something new and I, I think, okay, this novel is going to be important. And, you know, that's, mm. that's the death of it, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's sort of my new way, or, or I'm really going to try and say something. And then I have nothing to say in a minute. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it, uh, when I'm writing well, it's much more like, uh, it probably feels a bit more like acting. You know, I, I understand a character internally and I'm reacting to that character. The day that we're uh, recording this, this great essay just came out uh, that you wrote for the New York Times. Can you talk a little bit about it? So I wrote, I tree planted in the 90s for a couple of years. Um, and it, I knew at the time that like the contract that we were contractors working and being paid by a forestry company. So there was some cynicism involved. Um, so it wasn't like, I didn't know about that. I did have go, I kept going sort of thinking that putting a tree in the ground was better than not doing that. So I had this kind of, you know, and often when motivation was low or, you know, it was cold, it was quite brutal at times. 
the thought was, well, you know, at least we're making a forest. So it was actually this spring I had read, I read John Valiant's book, Fire Weather, right, which is yeah. a one, it was just nominated for the National Book Award. And so it should be, it's a phenomenal book. So I read that book and then it was, you know, I was standing in the smoke on an ill-advised run. The first day the smoke, the wildfire smoke really came into Toronto. And I just had this realization that, I, you know, I could, I almost could feel the black spruce in my hand. I, I planted these saplings with these long, wet roots. Um, and I just realized how many I'd planted and that, um, you know, after reading John's book that I'd, which is based in Alberta, it's a very different place than Ontario, but I planted a monoculture tree after tree mm -hmm. after tree. And I sometimes planted as many as 4,000 a day. Um, and, uh, you know, just to hear how combustible they were and to, and I started reading about it and it accumulated in writing this essay. I think it's really important, especially for someone my age, I'm 50 to, and, you know, I came of age in the nineties. There's like tree planting is not my only problem. Right. And I think part of gaining wisdom is getting the courage to look back and think about, what you've been a part of in the past and and that's got to be the first step in doing better i'm i'm really intrigued by the idea that when you started thinking about it one of the first things you did was start to actually feel the 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 tree in your hand actually feel the the sapling in your hand mm, right and it actually connects to something i wanted to talk to you about which is i feel like over your three books one thing that connects them is you are a very visceral writer. Hmm. You're a very you're very connected with your books, the stories, the narratives, and and the imagery. It's it's extremely visceral, and I think that does connect with a lot of the jobs you've held, a lot of the 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 ways you've earned a living, the the things you do. But does it come from something else? Are you do you consider yourself because? The other, you know, when I will read interviews, you're also like highly scholarly and doing research on, you know, through all these texts and going to libraries. How does that connect and where does that come from? Hmm. I mean, you're having Maybe. bear, you're having bears eat people like you're, and you're imagining like. <laughs> I know. I often, I think quite a few writers get this, but I often meet people and they're like, oh, you seem nice. I'm <laughs> <laughs> surprised. But um. I think, okay, so I grew up in a household of academics. Um, my dad is a professor of Old English and my mom's a historian. Um, you know, very scholarly house and very book oriented. And I guess my life's project, uh, you know, um, how you rebel in that atmosphere is you, <laughs> you, um, you become interested in sensation and, you know, how you're, mind and your body are actually connected <laughs> mm -hmm. so that that's sort of been um and I think I started going outdoors with that sort of impulse to try and like connect to the world um through something more than a book so hopefully you know both come together at some point but I do think that's maybe where it came from is that there was so much in you know my family life was so much in our heads that I started you know, wanting to seek out sensation, I guess. And I do think it has something to do with that. You know, when I step inside myself is when I write 
well. And that's kind of a thrilling place to be for a while. It's a hard place to be, but it's, um, I'm interested in it too. It's, it's same, it's very connected to the first question you asked me of, um, you know, when I'm self-conscious or not, or when I, you know, when I'm being more deliberate or not. Um, Mm -hmm. I think of like one thing, a question I often get is in The Bear, which is my second novel. I'm often asked why I decided to write that from the point of view of a young girl. And Mm. the true answer to that is that wasn't a decision at all. It was just something that happened. And that's, and I think that is a good example of if, you know, if I decided that and tried to do it, it wouldn't have worked for me. Right. Yeah. If, so if it like, had been on a, if it had been on like a card on the wall. At, yeah. At some or point. if I, if I started talking, you know, studying things and, uh, you know, and trying to like be scientific or do research on a five-year-old or something, I think right. it would have been difficult. But right. Yeah. That character sort of was inside me and came out more. Yeah. The other thing that links all of your books together to date is that they're they're slightly odd in in a in a good sense in the sense of they're very literary and they're very smart and but they they edge into these other things. I mean, you know, the first two books kind of actually all of them kind of touch almost into like you know, survival thrillers, like they be, yeah, again, definitely. it's that visceral versus the, the highly yeah. literary and, and, and thoughtful. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder, and I've, I've, you know, when we get into, you know, these categories have become a lot less important and have, yeah, they have blended they? a lot yeah. now, but when you were first publishing those books, there was still like, we were still erecting these snow fences between everything and I'm wondering, did you encounter a certain amount of snobbishness? Uh, yeah, I, I did definitely. I I would say for, for my first two books, there was a big thing about like, what are you literary or are you a genre writer? And this is going to be very tricky to sell. And I almost feel like it's become like a feature now. Like that's yeah. more what um, editors it's fl- like. It's, if before. anything, it's flipped. It's the actual. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a way, yeah. Please yeah. tell us this is a thriller. Please just please say we can call it a thriller. <laughs> I think, you know, early on, probably my problem was more, again, coming from this al- academic family, I wanted to write more accessibly and wanted to, I had no, um, you know, I wasn't trying to prove something on, you know, about my intellect or whatever else I wanted to try and reach people. And I'm, um, and I was very interested in, you know, I love survival stories and all that kind of stuff. And they, I, um, and I wanted to write in that vein. But I've always thought with my work, I sort of set up the expectation of a genre. And then I probably, like the, uh, the Line Painter, my first book, it's like sort of a, <laughs> it sets up the promise of a mystery, but it really isn't. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. so, you know, yeah. so that can be difficult I think I mean that's sort of for the marketing people to and my editors to figure out but um yeah I think sitting in between isn't always comfortable but it's fine too it's like it's that's actually again we my my whole life is divided into being self-conscious or not if I think too much about where my book is going to be on a shelf or or anything else it's also going to kill the writing right (laughs) it just that just has to come later right Um, 
Yeah. And I'm not, I wish I would be much more commercially successful if I could say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And there's where it's going to sit. And, you know, wouldn't that be nice, but I just can't like, I, you know, I can't do that. I can't. I do have to sort of broach this subject though, which is kind of the whole point of this podcast, which is the last Neanderthal came out in 2017. And I can't say anything because that's, you know, that's the gap I have between books, but it was a bestseller and people loved that book. And I can't imagine that there wasn't some pressure from externally to like, okay, now let's go, let's go. We need like within 18 months, 24 months, there should be another thing. Um, The second part of that question is whatever you're working on now, does it have something to do with Beowulf? Because I, (laughs) I did read that you were going deep into Beowulf. Yeah. The the first part of it is that is just the gap. Okay, the first part is the gap. So let's see, in uh, 2018, so I actually meant to write a whole series. I had two other books sort of in my mind that would go with The Last Neanderthal. Um, And I've got starts to them. And um, in 2018, so a year after it came out, I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, And that just... So it was, I actually wrote about this for the globe. It was um, the same kind of cancer that my dad had. So I realized it was a hereditary thing. And um, it, yes, and he, what I was 45 and he had died at 42. So I had this very sort of, oh, this is how it could go. And he died, he died in the eighties of cancer. So it was this horrible extended, you know, chemotherapy that's just like, a flamethrower sort of death. Right, right. Really awful. Um, So it shook me up, definitely. And I kind of lost my, I had to have an operation. And I'm, I mean, it's kind of a good story in that it, well, it's not, but, but (laughs) I didn't need too much for their treatment. Um, So I started to recover, but I found I'd lost my voice. Um, And it's probably related to the, what we've, you know, this theme we've been picking on, but I just couldn't believe that I'd ever made something up and I couldn't understand Mm. how I, I, I remember looking at the bear and just thinking that someone else must've written it. I couldn't, I just, my, my capacity for fiction was just gone. Was it total, like total sort of emotional dissociation or did it start to feel trivial or what, what was the actual sensation or did it literally feel like I just have Um, no access to that anymore? It was more like not having access. I was impressed that I'd done it. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) But it was sort of like someone else. It was like, that is incredible. I'm astonished that I ever could have done that. I can't imagine it. It just sort of felt like when they cut out the cancer, they took my creativity with it or something. Right. I don't know. And then, uh, so I, so getting back on my feet wasn't easy, but what I did was, it was actually, I was looking at the bear and I was kind of amazed by it. And then I noticed, I reread this prologue that I wrote about, and it had this line in it that said um, that there was a, so it was sort of loosely based on a bear attack that happened in Algonquin Park in 1991. So there was this line um, about the true story and how I had departed from that in the prologue of the book. And I'd mentioned that there was a broken oar on the campsite that was found in, in real life. Um, and it just struck me as odd because I've 
always thought in my mind that it was a broken paddle. And so I started looking through what research I'd done, which wasn't much because it was, you know, inspired by rather than a literal retelling. And I found these articles that referred to paddles instead of oars, and they were all over the place. And that launched this obsession with getting to the truth about that bear attack. Mm. Um, and I ended up, you know, I was still like, I had, I think, 34 stitches in my back. And I, I was like, you know, I, I could barely, I could sit, but I was sort of still uncomfortable. And there I drove up to Algonquin Park to go talk to bear biologists and like survey the scene of the attack. I just really needed to know the truth about what happened. So I launched into this investigation and um, started writing about it. Um, <laughs> so that's taken me five years. I've just finished that book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so again, if I'd been thinking would this have been the logical thing, I just got completely obsessed with it and then started writing about the, um, not a bear attack is like cancer, but this feeling of being sort of eaten because my cancer is um, skin cancer and it's, you know, really the only thing that the doctors can do for me is cut it off. So I'm sort of being, you know, and I, every, I get little parts of my body lopped up <laughs> every once in a while. So I started, uh, and then just about how you recover and how you get back on your feet. Um, and so I was, I've been in all that. And then the pandemic happened too. And I've been writing fiction, but badly, like just, I don't know why, for some reason during the pandemic, maybe it was all the people in my house. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I might know why. I, I wrote a lot, but not well. So right. I've written a couple of books, but they're just not good um, fiction. So I think, <laughs> so that's a really a lot of answer there. No. But I think that, so that I'll sum it up in that there's two bad novels that will never see the light of day. And then one work of nonfiction, which will, I'm just signing the contract for. <laughs> Honestly, if, if anyone asks you about that gap, all you need to say is like, I got cancer. And then that that conversation is over. <laughs> What's it to you? And yeah, yeah, exactly. then, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's right. Plus the pandemic. I yes. mean, it was, and, <laughs> so I write at home. This is my like the sort of front of the upstairs room that I'm in now. And I couldn't believe it when my like husbands and kids wouldn't leave. I was like, mm. you know, I really right. on an empty house for that focus. And that that's the the, the kind of trick with fiction that that I think distinguishes it from writing nonfiction is that with fiction you really need to kind of get deep and I'm like the millionth writer to talk about this but you need to kind of get into a really slightly unself-conscious spell-like state you have to kind of hypnotize yourself and you can't do that if you know that there's someone yelling on the other side of the door yeah. or someone's about to bust in going where are my socks or you can hear a fight going on downstairs. I can't log in to Bright Space, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for example. Yeah. Just run off yeah. the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> What's an integer? Can you help me with these fractions? Yeah, and the answer was always no. I can't even do grade 10 math, as it turns out. Yes. Yeah, so that, yeah, it was hard, wasn't it? So I, um, and I actually quit this um, bear attack book. I, this investigation because I couldn't get it working and I just decided well I'm not meant to write nonfiction. what was I thinking uh and I quit it last summer and then it just sort of somehow was on my back burner and came together 
and I and it's works now for I I cannot explain that it's the biggest mystery to me how you can quit a book and how it your brain mm -hmm. somehow I, it does feel like a back burner. Like I wasn't watching the pot, but somehow came your subconscious is still working through it some drafts. Say, yeah, and, there was yeah. someone working on it. It didn't feel like me, but yeah, it yeah. must have been, I guess. I don't know. I also think, I mean, as someone who has also gone through that process of, of cancer treatment, yeah. actually kind of a, shortly before you did as well, though though not as in, intensely, it's really like any traumatic experience. It's like there's yeah. the you before you get, the diagnosis or the prognosis and then there's the you after and yeah, linking the two is very difficult it's it's you can sort of look over the fence and say like oh i remember when i didn't know that we are all mortal <laughs> but uh <laughs> i can't go back over that fence i can never you can never quite recover that same sense of complete innocence uh oh, not at yeah all. so did it f affect your writing it did. I had the same like. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, a year or two where I was like, I'm just. Why would I? Why would I bother? What's the What's the point of that? But oh, in my case, uh, I didn't have you know, hundreds of thousands of readers and multiple publishers wanting, wanting that next book. So I had at least the, the freedom, uh, the blessing, and the curse of you know, no but no expectations. Whereas I would imagine it was different when you have the sense of like. Well, this novel, The Last Neanderthal, has been published in all these different languages. It was a bestseller. It has all these editors now connected with it. And they're all sort of looking like, hi, Claire, like, we're, yeah. we're, our inbox is open, you know. Yeah. But the trick is that they always like all those kinds of people or like salespeople or whatever. They want a good book. They don't want a not good book. Right. <laughs> so there's only so much I can do about that. Right. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so this book yeah. that you just finished, the investigation okay. into the yeah. bear attack, is it is it part memoir in that sense of like, yes. do you link the the cancer experience with the investigation? It's it's not just you you mention it in the prologue and then get on with the bear invest it's very much these two two things twinned yeah it has kind of three strands i suppose it's my um experience of seeing my father die of cancer and then going through being sick myself um and then the second strand is the investigation um and what actually happened as far as i could discern and then the third um strand is the bear in the year leading up to the attack and what he was doing and thinking oh okay was it a was it a the bear i mean i don't want to spoil anything from the book i'll read it of course but was this a tagged bear? Like, were they, was it a trackable bear, in other words? So they did a lot of research after this attack because it, it happened in 1991 and two adults were killed, which is a mm -hmm. very rare thing. And it was a black bear. It was in Algonquin Park. There's only black bears there. So um, they, what they realized when that happened was most of the research had been done on mothers with cubs because they're often the ones that are most visibly aggressive, you know, or that you run into a trail and everyone kind of knows that. Um, mm -hmm. Watch out for the mum with cubs, mama bears and things. But it was actually Stephen Herrero, who's a researcher at the University of Calgary, who did a very systematic um, analysis of bear attacks and realized that it was... Uh, older males um so they're actually like very successful bears they've taken 
risks and they on a very rare occasion will stalk and will view humans as prey and stalk them um mm. and, you know with a view to eating them essentially um and so this was one of those attacks this very rare large male so this bear was eight and a half years old and very healthy you know because okay um, I worked in Algonquin Park at the time and there's all these rumors that the bear was sick or that it was a, you know, a rogue bear or whatever else. So I worked with bear biologists to kind of get um, into that and really understand it from the bear's perspective, I guess. <laughs> is, yeah, is what I did. Yeah. Which was fascinating. I somehow, I grew up in, in a small town, sort of north of Ottawa, not that far from Algonquin Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I somehow spent most of my childhood and made it into adulthood without actually ever seeing a bear. But then about 10 years ago, my wife and I um, got a place up in Sobble Beach that we share with my, with my uh, in-laws. And right away just constant bears just wow. bears all the time where yeah the best one was we were sitting at a fire that we have a little fire pit and we were all yeah. a bunch of us sitting around and we looked over and there was one at the cabin next door drinking out of the hummingbird feeder <laughs> oh just yeah like stretched out as if it was like a, a feeder yeah. or something we all were like all right let's move inside <laughs> and about three weeks ago my father-in-law went there and he works for a a camp that's out there so he was there in the camp truck and he had a bunch of bags of garbage in the back of the truck yeah this is about one in the afternoon on a wednesday went inside our place our little cottage place came back out and a mother and her cub oh, were wow. there they had pulled all the garbage off the back of the truck and were oh, just methodically it shredding it you know? <laughs> and he took one step towards them and the mother just sort of huffed yeah like moved her head and huffed and he was like okay and went back inside and just waited for them to to clear right. off and they know yeah. when the garbage gets picked up from all the They're cottages very so they... smart yes right? they they that's what uh i came to respect the level of intelligence in doing this research it's they're incredible animals it was and actually that's when the book started working was when i started fully appreciating the bear and its intelligence um and understanding that part of it, that's what brought everything together. So the second part of that question was, Oh yeah. Where okay. does Beowulf, Beowulf oh, where does Beowulf play in? Okay. Because it, when you, when the last Neanderthal came out, you did a number of interviews where people would say, okay, what are you doing now? And you had talked about the idea of you just kind of get into these obsessions mm -hmm. and just follow them. And maybe there's a book at the end of them. Maybe there's no book that kind of goes back to our, you know discussion of like intention yeah and, and the intellect versus what you act what your your writerly self really wants to do and you were saying i'm i'm reading all these translations of beowulf yeah that's right are they is there any beowulf in the in the new book or did that yes, kind of come to a natural actually. conclusion uh no and that absolutely could have because i have lots of those where i'll spend so much time on something and it's it doesn't turn into anything it's just I don't even think of it as wasting time anymore no, <laughs> I used but... to I used to think of it as wasting time now it's just like oh that was interesting and then off I go so Beowulf um so my dad was a um 
professor of Old English at University of Toronto. Um, and so he told me the story of Beowulf as a child. It was like my bedtime story, which actually probably is like my oh, root problem. <laughs> now <laughs> I'm starting to see the key. All. I'm starting to understand. Um, so I, and I'm very interested in, in reading the translations in Kennings in Old English, which are two, when you take two nouns and put them together and they, um, they're used as a descriptive word. So a whale, for example, or the ocean, for example, um, in some translations of Beowulf is a whale road. And I love okay. that. It just, yeah. or like that, you know, a bracelet is an arm serpent um, or a eye is an eyelash moon. I just love the, because they change your orientation, don't they? Mm -hmm. They like turn you into a different, like, you know, when you hear whale road, you become the whale and you start seeing in the ocean from a completely different perspective. So the kennings in Old English, how two things um, that are not like each other can come together and lend meaning to each other and become something new or give you a new perspective. That became the sort of central theme of this book that I've just written um, and sort of the way that I in, uh, I tied it together, I suppose. I made sense of what I was doing driving to Algonquin Park when I <laughs> when you really should out of my back that. and like, yeah. yeah, and what this sort of compulsion was that I was following. Um, yeah, so it, it and, and, and coming to terms, I guess, with um, the idea that my story isn't necessarily like my dad's. Um, I have to, to confess, and this is evidence that I am not from an academic background, that when you were talking about Whale Road and the Kennings and that that kind of language, which is beautiful, my stupid brain immediately went to the joke from The Simpsons when Mo, the bartender, makes fun of Homer for saying garage as if that's a pretentious word. And he's like, well, what do you call it? The car hold. There's some that. advantage to having that <laughs> academic background where you don't immediately reach for the Simpsons reference that, that fits. I love the Simpsons reference. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, because there's an academic approach to Beowulf, but there's like how I encountered it as a young child, which was Just like, as a story, just as this like thrilling story, monster story. My dad story. would get all into it. And Old English, when it's like spoken, I mean, they don't know exactly how it sounds, but he could speak it. And he said, so he would, like, he would tell you the story in Old English? Like, well, would he use phrases, right? And it's oh, like okay. fierce guttural, like, Argh! and he was like a six foot five tall man. And so I get all riled up and like have my sword and start jumping around. It was like one of those bedtimes is the opposite of bedtime. It's like, yeah, really thrilling. But they were very like bloodthirsty gold cups people dying you know it's like quite a epic story so I'm sure it's <laughs> it's sort of um fueled my taste for that kind of thing like yeah it's, you know absolutely yeah so it wasn't I you know some of it's academic and some of it I mean that, that's what we were talking about before it was like very visceral storytelling bedtime <laughs> storytelling <laughs> yeah because there's like there's different there's three monsters in Beowulf right there's Grendel who's kind of um you know, he gets his arm cut off by Beowulf and his mom has to go and get it for him and stuff. And then there's the mother, Grendel's mother, who's like a very fearsome creature. And then the dragon at the end, who's kind of like the existential threat, the fire breathing, who's like going to mow down the whole land. So it definitely has this very um, sort of epic traditional progression through it too. 
I feel like that is all a perfect encapsulation of your sort of uh, uh, the map of your imagination, of your writerly imagination, which is to have someone barking old English at you as a child <laughs> going to bed, but barking like from a from like from a place of deep study and scholarship, but then creating this incredibly visceral moment. Yeah. And love too. Like there's a lot of love. It's in that. the key. Care That's that is the key. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All delivered by a, a beloved yeah. family member and yeah. delivered with with as a connection, a way to connect. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any recordings or videos of uh, that exist of your dad uh, reading Beowulf? Yeah, I don't know. It was like so 80s. Like the tape recorder would have had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, that's become like a big thing for me with research because I remember, uh, what were we watching? Something a long time ago and he was disturbed by the historical detail. And I remember he him turning to me and say, if they wanted to know what shoes they would have worn, why didn't they just ask? <laughs> and that's always become sort of a guiding principle of doing research for my fiction or whatever I'm doing is I just ask. It's like, it's, it's such a good point. Just ask, because so many people are really happy to talk about what they do and what they're interested in. You've addressed this before and the idea of like using the research, you called it like creative constraints, like what's going to happen right. within the story is going to happen within the frame of this research. Yeah, I think in some ways I I um, went through, like for the last Neanderthal, I did a lot of research and I almost, it almost took over a little, like I, I, you know, and I think that's something I'm still trying to work through and maybe I'm sort of getting through that now, but it's a really hard balance. And I definitely weigh on the, it has to be correct, but I write myself in circles because of that too. So I'm always quite, I'm always quite jealous when, yeah, you know, I watch a film and it's like inspired by, but they, then they don't, you know, they just go on and do whatever. They Basically want. fudge it. They'll just fudge it. Yeah. There's yeah. something actually in my recent um, manuscript. So I wrote the story of um, the bear attack, as I was saying in my investigation. And there's one place where I kind of, uh, and then the story of the bear was informed by everything that I knew to be factual. But obviously I uh, have some creative license in there because I don't know exactly that he ate blueberries on August 14th, you know, or whatever right. else. Um, but there was one place where I added in a bit of action or drama that kind of went against the autopsy or the necropsy report that I have for the bear. And it was so funny because my agent read the manuscript and he said, you know, I loved it all great, but there's this one part that just didn't ring true where the bear was shot. And um, I had a, the, I built in a previous injury for the bear that actually wasn't on the, his animal autopsy um so it was the one part where I wasn't true to the research I'd done and it's somehow somehow I showed my hand it was very oh, interesting my agent didn't know that and I'd never told him but he just picked he just said yeah that whole chapter didn't ring true amazing almost I, like a, uh, a band a band of light was missing or something, or, <laughs> something know, like a nutrient yeah. fell or out I guess of the it's, writing it's sort of like writing science fiction or something that I set up these rules for mm. this manuscript so it has to be informed by this and then I didn't follow it in that one part and somehow it made my writing hollow or yeah I don't know it did but it did it does feel like that to me it's um like rules 
science fiction is a good one, actually. You know how a story will have very set laws to their universe. And I, I think of any book I write that way. And do you, what's the what's the do you have a name that's that's or is it just at a working title? Oh, well, right now it's called How to Survive a Bear Attack. Oh, that's. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because that's a question people always ask me. They say, you know, if I see a bear, what should I do? And the answer is actually quite complicated because it's like, where are you? Is it a black bear? Is it a grizzly? Is it approaching you defensively? Like the the example you gave before of the wolf um, is this defensive behavior, which sort of the bear is actually saying, you know, I'm nervous, please, please steer yeah. clear. Um, or is it offensively, you know, is it um, showing signs of predation? And if it is showing signs of predation, you want to react very differently if it's a black bear versus a grizzly. Anyway, so th it's just not easy to like, so, so I kind of wrote around, uh, um, the reader goes through that, the idea of like how to survive a bear attack is very literally about that. But I wonder if it's, I, I wonder if the, it will be interesting to see if that site title survives. Cause <laughs> I said, I, it was one of those, like I was at a family party this summer and I said it to my cousin and she was like, Oh, so Emmanuel, you know, she just yeah. took it literally. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder if I'm going to have trouble. You know, literally a how to memoir, guide. Yeah. You know, we'll see. Probably I'm going to get in some awkward conversations about it. I think, I don't know. I also have to ask when you did that trip to Algonquin Park to begin your your research and again yeah. your health was not quite 100% and and you probably shouldn't have been doing it you probably your mental health wasn't as at 100% then yeah. knowing the trauma of that kind of treatment I also have to ask did you bring a camping toilet with you exactly, or did you follow right? your own did you follow your own advice Okay so this is the whole thing with um it's very pertinent point um because my whole life and definitely my recovery from um the so I was nine I think when my father died my recovery was very much in the outdoors and learning to climb rock climb and mountaineer and canoe these were all things that like reconnected me and got me going back into the world so when I was diagnosed with cancer um it's skin cancer and I have this hereditary uh, mutation in one of my genes. So it means I'm very susceptible to melanoma. Um, and it means I can't go in the sun mm. and out. So it was just, that's what made it so catastrophic for me is mm -hmm. that the way I'd learned to recover, I could no longer do. And I almost couldn't yeah. my life. Like, how do I operate in the world without going, you know, going on a canoe trip and <laughs> taking a shit in the woods 30 days in a row like that's always what I've done so I ended up I was in a staying in a hotel and I had to wear a big brimmed hat and I had sunscreen all over me you know I was like the opposite mm -hmm. of who I thought I was I you know I was playing this <laughs> this bear detective role but it was very odd it was very odd for me to be up there and be staying in a hotel and not be hiking. I'd never even done any of like the day hikes in Algonquin Park because I couldn't be bothered with them. They weren't, you know, they weren't worth my time because I wanted to go back for 20 right. days, whatever, and portage and everything else. So so that trip was so much about learning, try, starting to learn how to be without, with while sitting on a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> distressing it's probably part of what kept you 
disconnected from your writerly self too. that that idea of like this was this is such a part of your identity and, yeah. and how you understand the world how you heal how you recover from things yeah be disconnected from that it's it's possibly that's why that imaginative you know that part of your imagination was also cut off absolutely and it was i think an ex also coming to terms with an experience that so many people you said it very well before like that you you can't go back and you realize how different the world is than you thought but i wasn't perfectly able bodied you know really mm -hmm. I, I had to learn how to live with a disability and it was um shocking to not be able to do whatever i wanted whenever i wanted you know it it, it was extremely humbling and something that I'm glad I've learned. And I don't take that for granted. I just can remember being in Algonquin. So it's sort of indignant that I couldn't that I couldn't go on the trip I wanted or whatever. Oh no, we're having a dog break in. Oh, that's goes, adorable. <laughs> Come on, Sydney. Just go up there. Oh. She um we have a deal that she stays out in the morning and then in the afternoon she can come in when I'm done writing because I write in the morning. Right. So, so she, she just just senses she's like, like it's okay. too hot. Come on. <laughs> yeah. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.